Today's scripture reading comes from Exodus chapter 24, verse 3 through 11. Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 through 11. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who, burnt, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, at this time, we ask that you would illuminate your word so that seeing and hearing, we may be able to understand. And through understanding, we may be able to obey and follow. Lord God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we're going to go through the chapters of 21 to 24 today. And if it's your first time visiting us or you haven't uh, been here in a while, we've been going through the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, we see that God has a redemptive plan for his people out of oppression, out of slavery, out of sadness and this uh, place where there was hopelessness to a place where he draws them out of these things to a place where he is. So he continues to draw them out of depression, sadness, anxiety, darkness, to a place where he is. And so through this journey, through this process, we saw a lot of amazing things that God is doing. But one of the pinnacles of the story that we see here is here, when he gives the law of God, when he gives the law to Moses, and then... I don't know what you would think of it. If you were in small group, you may have read some of these or you've read some of this before. Uh, but there are some questions that might come up if you read this portion of the scripture. Uh, things like in chapter 21, verse 17, anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. So is executing your children an application of this passage. And some parents might nod yes. No, I'm just kidding. I'm probably no one's going to nod yes to that. But there are some really relevant questions. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. Exodus chapter 22, verse 25. So is it wrong to have a mortgage? Celebrate the feast of unleavened bread. 23:15. Should we keep Jewish festivals? Or do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk, like 23, 19. What does that have to do with anything, right? 
And so we have these questions, and I do believe these are relevant questions, and that we should ask these questions. A lot of us may be inclined to just skip through this portion. Let's get to the good stuff. You know, let's get to the parting of the Red Sea. Oh, we did that. Let's get to the part where he drowns the chariot. Oh, he did that. Let's get to the part where they get to the promised land, and then you won't see that here. But so this part is good, and I do think that we shouldn't just skip over it. But let's, let's stay here for a bit, and let's go over it. And I think it is important to know what the laws were, why they were written, and we'll see a little bit. We'll explore a little bit this morning. Uh, I was reading some, I was looking through some websites, and there was a place called Dumb Laws, I think .com or something like that. It's really called Dumb Laws. And they would put together a bunch of laws that were old or archaic, that were dumb, and then they would kind of make fun or mock it a little. And there, one stuck out to me in particular, and it's a law in New York State. And this author, whoever wrote this or whoever uh, put this in the website said, in New York, adultery is still a crime. No, seriously, they thought this was a dumb law. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And so there are people who think some laws are good and some laws are dumb. And I guess it depends on who you are. But there are other less, I suppose, less serious, um, but they're a law. In, if you live in Creskill, uh, there's a law that was passed that says, uh, I think the number is three. You can look it up but you have to put a minimum of three bells on the collar of your cat if you take the cat outside in Cresco, if you live in Cresco. And the reason why is they needed to give birds a fighting chance if a cat would go after the bird. So they put a law. Um, this is in Cresco, but in all of New Jersey, did you know it's illegal to murder someone? Yes, it is, uh, but in all of New Jersey, it's also illegal to murder someone while wearing a bulletproof vest. So yeah, I mean, that, that there's a law that says if you're murdering someone, you can't wear a bulletproof vest. Also, by the way, you can't murder someone. And so perhaps it was there to put on an additional penalty, I don't know, or give people a fighting chance if they're gonna be murdered, I'm not sure, but it is a law. If you live in Trenton, um, I enjoyed this one a lot. And people in Trenton may already be uh, aware of this. And they have this thing about pickles. I don't know why. There's in Connecticut too. I don't know why. The pickles are big in this area. But the law states that you cannot throw a bad pickle in the street. So if you throw a bad pickle in the street, that you're breaking the law in Trenton. Um, I'm not sure why it was made, uh, but it just raises so many more questions to me, for real. Um, another law about pickles on Sundays, you can't eat it in Trenton. There's a law that says pickles are not to be consumed on Sundays. I don't think they like pickles or something like that, or people that like pickles, they didn't like. But even in Connecticut, uh, they have this rule that says it's not officially a pickle unless it bounces. So in Connecticut, they have very high standards for their pickles. Uh, in Rhode Island, it's illegal to throw pickle juice from a trolley. So, I mean, you get all these things, um, and uh, you got to start wondering why they would make it. Why did they make these laws? There must be a reason behind it. Um, 
One of the things that intrigued me when I first came to Jersey, uh, if you don't know, I grew up in New York City all my life, and then I came to Jersey and lived here for the first time in 2008 when I started serving uh, Pilgrim Church in their youth group. But um, you can't pump your own gas in Jersey. And all of you in Jersey is like, yeah, obviously. But this is really weird. For me, it was very foreign. I, I want to just drive up to the gas station, get out and pump my gas and leave. But you have to wait till that person comes and then give them your credit card or tell them that you're going to pay in cash, and then they have to pump your gas. So apparently, there was a controversial law that was passed in 1949 after certain lawmakers thought it was too dangerous to have untrained drivers pump their own gas. So you can't pump your own gas in Jersey. Um, well, I don't know if anybody's going to really fine you for any of these or arrest you, but... I think they're interesting because laws and rules reflect, or laws and customs reflect the belief in that day, or the customs and culture of that day in that area. And I want to go even further and say laws and customs reflected belief and the submission to them. And back in the day when this law was given, religious belief was intertwined with practice down to the very exercise of life. Religious belief was intertwined with all of their daily practices down to the very small things. And speaking of exercises, you can look at even yoga. Yoga is a word for divine union, it, that, it means divine union. I was reading some yoga sites to kind of brush up or to learn about yoga. I didn't know a lot of things, but <clears throat> one yoga instructor said, yoga is not a religion, and capitalized not. Yoga is not a religion, rather it is a discipline, one that leads to ultimate freedom. So that made me smile and I wrote that down. Uh, yoga is not a religion, but it gives you ultimate freedom. This is what this person said. Uh, if, you, if you know anything about yoga, I'm sure you're familiar with this, and this is very basic to you, but you would continue. There's different levels of yoga. Uh, as Westerners, you might be familiar with hatha, hatha yoga, which is the exercise portion, but there's chanting portions and memorizing portions of yoga. There are different like eight versions of yoga that you would do, and you would continue to do these things, practice, chant, repeat, until you transcend your mind and emotions and receive or get to this place of super consciousness, super consciousness. And so even yoga's roots are very religious. It had to do with what they believed, not just culture, but what they thought about God and the supreme being. Um, if you're Chinese, there's Tai Chi Chuan, right? And, uh, or Tai Chi for short, which people may be familiar with. And that has Chinese religious and metaphysical roots. Uh, one definition says that Tai Chi is supposed to be understood as the highest conceivable principle from which existence flows. Or this is, Tai Chi is another word for the supreme ultimate. Tai, I think people who know any Eastern language know that Tai or die, or in Japanese is die, or Korean it's te, right? That's where we get university, um, anything big. So that's the tie. And chi is not like chi, the power chi, but it's 
also another word for ultimate. So it's like the big or grand or the supreme, and then the second word is ultimate. And so what does this mean? Uh, there in Taoism, you're taught that there was a place of once wuchi, and there was nothing, and now there was something happened. And to get the understanding, you need Tai Chi. From Tai Chi, you get the yin, yin and yang. And so there is nothing, and to get into this existence, you have this, uh, um, like, this polarization that happened from nothingness. And so even Tai Chi would have teachings. Yoga has teachings. All these things have teachings that have religious connotations and roots. Um, they all have this basis. What does that mean for us? What about Christians? What about Christians? How do we see the basis and the foundation of the world? How we see it depends on how we act, right? So if you see the world as Wu Chi eventually coming to a state of Tai Chi or we need to achieve this place, then you have these exercises and practices that you do. So what does it mean for the Christian? What does it mean that we see certain laws here that don't entirely make sense in the beginning, at first glance. And I think, to me, this is pretty exciting. I'm pretty excited about this stuff, um, probably because I'm a nerd, but I, I just, I really do think these are amazing things that we get to see. And number one, you gotta also understand, who are these laws given to? They are people in an agrarian economy. So some were designed to avoid confusion, or some were designed to, so that you don't mimic or get contaminated by the Canaanite traditions or religions. But when you continue to see it, there is something that's happening. A covenant is being given. And you see that the law of Moses written on tablets of stone is being given to these people, and this covenant is going to be formalized and made and presented and told to follow. And so what does this law now point to? It points, and we went over this last week, the law now points to Jesus and the will of God. I mean, we're currently not under the Mosaic Covenant, but that does not mean that this is all meaningless. The law of Moses may not define God's will for us, but it does point to God's will. So it points to God's will teaching us things teaching us that because God is not capricious or arbitrary, he didn't approve of this or disapprove a certain set of behaviors only to then, oh, Jesus came and now he's changed his mind. And some of us are in this mindset thinking that, oh, this was back in the Mosaic time. So I don't need to listen or understand any of that. This is Jesus' time. But I want to tell you and even warn you that God is still the same God. And whatever he would approve and disprove, he's not going to change his mind. God's will is fixed and eternal. So what does the law really mean for us? And I uh, just want to give an example. I remember taking this one kid uh, out uh, with their parents, and then uh, this is when I was younger. Immediately when we got to the street, uh, the kid just put up his hand like this so that I would hold it, i hold his hand. Apparently, his parents were back and just walking, and um, because I was next to him, he immediately did this. Parents taught his kid that before crossing the street, you always have to hold 
an adult's hand. That was law for them. And so when we see things like this, uh, do you look right now, perhaps some of you grew up like that. When you were younger and you're crossing the street, it's dangerous. Hold your parent's hand. So now when you cross the street, do you hold your, look for your parent's hand? And obviously not. It's kind of ridiculous if a grown person went like this, right, just walking. He's like, this is because when I was younger, my parents taught me I want to be a good son. And then you walk down. No, you don't do that. But what are we to know and understand from that rule? Wasn't there a point to the rule? Isn't there a wisdom to the rule that shows us something about what our parents are trying to teach us? So even in that very simple, basic example, what are we trying to see here? And what are we to see here that God is teaching us about himself? For example, take, <clears throat> excuse me, let's take Exodus chapter 21, verse 28 to 29. It says, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall also be put to death. So most of us don't own oxen. Actually, I don't know anybody that owns oxen here. But in this sense, you would think the law is irrelevant to us. But I am telling you that this law is expressing something that is timeless something that we ought to understand. Accidents happen, but people shouldn't be held responsible for accidents or something that was an accident. You can be culpable for an accident if you didn't take steps to prevent what could have been anticipated. So I can learn, or we can learn, two things, and <clears throat> excuse me, in the very least, from this passage alone. Number one is I shouldn't blame someone if they accidentally harm me, meaning there is restitution, but no punishment. And number two, if I can anticipate an accident, then I should take steps to prevent it. So what does the law eventually teach us? It teaches us a lot, but what does it essentially point us to? It points us to a true freedom. Yes, truer than the ultimate freedom hot yoga advertises, this is true freedom. And it's not difficult to figure out what ultimately timeless and universal, what ultimately is timely and universal in the law. Because later on, Jesus would come and they would ask him, and he would say, the law is this, to love God and to love your neighbor. And if you think about it, then that's worthy of a lot of meditation. We've got to think about this. Because how are some of these laws about love? How did the people of God, remember the people of God understood this too back in Jesus' time, and Jesus come to this understanding and conclusion? Because I can't go along with some of them. Some of them have a difficult time. I think we would have a difficult time because some of them, it seems that we're even promoting certain institutions that we disagree with. For instance, Chapter 21, verse 2, when you buy a Hebrew slave. I don't like that because it seems like it's promoting slavery. When you buy a Hebrew slave, shouldn't the law be like, you should have no Hebrew slaves? What's going on here? So we should 
explore, and I think is worthy of our time and attention to explore exactly what's going on. And obviously, when you look at this, what we are to take is they weren't supposed to be slave masters or task masters that they had in Egypt. Otherwise, they would have been trading one slavery for another. But back then, when you fell into deep debt or when you went into poverty, uh, there was no, no such thing as bankruptcy or someone eating that debt, um, perhaps like we do in our institution and system. But when you fell into deep debt or poverty, they had this option of paying off their debts, debts by being a slave. And some historians or commentators now want to call them not slave but indentured servant because of the cruel connotations the word slave has to us today um, in our time period. But by offering yourself, yourself as a slave, you were able to get out of this debt that you could have never done otherwise. So there was a system in place that you were able to get out of debt that you couldn't have, you couldn't have otherwise. And now we can have a debate. Maybe there could have been a better way to deal with debt. But let's continue reading. See what it says here. And it says, He shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. And you continue to read this and continue to read on. We see that the Lord is now providing provisions and protections. And this is a continual theme throughout the chapters for the people that are less fortunate than you for the people that are poorer than you, the people that are less well-off in society. These laws protected the poor from abuse and from perpetual poverty. If you read it carefully, after six years, what happens? Is this person still indentured to you? Is this person still indebted to you? The answer is no. What if, what if he did a bad job? What if he was just a terrible, terrible servant. Can you keep him on? The answer is no. After six, you let him go. And so there are things that protecting, there, there are things that are now we are seeing are going to be placed to protect the less fortunate. And you know, if you think about it, we have systems like this in place now. If you sign up for military service, you are contractually obligated to fulfill your commitment. Some would even add to that, morally obligated to fulfill that commitment. You can't just quit because you change your mind and the decision to commit to active duty, we should take as a serious one. If you, have, if you need to decide between going on to active duty in the US military, that is a very serious decision and you know when people here are deciding that, uh, we have people that have gone to uh, active duty that have come back that offer, have offered their advice because it's a very serious commitment. You have similar contracts of varying levels even in your workplaces today, all the way from non-compete to non-disclosure with hefty penalties assigned if they're broken. We just have different names and words perhaps, but there's something to think about. Do we have the spirit of God's law that we see here in chapter 21 in our workplaces today? 
protection for the less fortunate, and so on. Because that's what we see here. After six years, no matter what, he's free to go. You can't hold him. He's a free man. Or when we continue to go on, let's go on to the sabbatical laws. Chapter 23. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. And the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field, what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. You know, not only was leaving um, the sixth year fallow or just not sowing then good for the earth and wise agriculture. But this rest was for the inhabitants of the land as well. The earth would rest, would recoup its resources, but also the poor. Six years you would work, get out of debt. Now what? You can rest and not worry about work. And you think about this kind of picture here. If you take a wet towel and you need to squeeze the water out of it, you can continue to squeeze and squeeze and squeeze, but eventually you're going to run out. What do you have to do? You need to replenish so that next time you wring that towel, water will come out. And so you see this kind of thing going on, this teaching going on. And not only for the people, for the poor, God is making provisions for the wild animals too. God cares for all his creation and teaches his people that are now receiving this law to care with him. Do you see what's happening? God is saying, I love my people. I love the poor, and I love all that I have created, even the wild animals, not the domesticated, even the wild animals, and look, you get to do it too with me because you're going to participate in this Sabbath. And we see that in these laws, we see something incredibly important that we are to understand. We see the character of God, who God is. God is showing us more and more about who he is what he's like, what he likes, what he doesn't like, but who he is in general. And if I love somebody, we can say it all we want, but if I love somebody, we spend time with them and we find out about the person's character, about what they're all about. And God is teaching his people, but also showing his people what he's like. Because all the way through chapter 21, 22, 23, we see these laws in place, and we see God showing his kindness, his mercy, his love for his people. And honestly, to me, it's mind-blowing. Because no matter what system we're in, whether we're in a democratic republic, whether even if we're not, we're in some other economic or socioeconomic or government system, we see that God's law can apply to them because God is showing us that whatever system or institution we have placed, there are still things we need to understand that go even above that. And that is we need to care and love for the people he also cares and loves. And we get to see that, and it goes all the way to the passage that we read this morning. What does it all mean? You know, it says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then it says in verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. You know, I just want to get back to this again. There is something about 
what Moses does every time this is, oh, we need to do this. Oh, we need rock. Oh, we need, um, I'm sorry, we need water. It comes from the rock, right? We need to fight uh, the Malachites. We need to get manna. All the stuff that happens is the next morning, early in the morning. And there's just something about it that I think we shouldn't miss. And that this time he does it too. He writes down all the words of the Lord. He rises early in the morning, builds, the, builds an altar at the foot of the mountain, 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he sets young men, the people of Israel, who offer burnt offerings and sacrifices, peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And then he does something really interesting. Of all the sacrifices that are taken, he takes half of the blood and he puts it in a basin. And the other half he sprinkles or throws on the altar. And this is the foot of the Lord, right? This is at the foot of the mountain of where God is. He throws it on the altar. And then as he throws it on the altar, uh, he takes the book of the covenant in verse 7, reads it so that people hear. And then they respond, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And they add something else to that. And we will be obedient. There's something happening. And this is something we need to pay attention to. Moses took the blood and he threw it or sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So we briefly talked about the Mosaic covenant and the new covenant that Jesus would install. But this is the installation of the Mosaic covenant. After declaring that they would follow the words of the law, the covenant is initiated Blood sacrificed from animals is thrown against the altar, signifying God. And then the book of the covenant is read so that everyone heard it, to which they agreed and responded, yes, we will do that. And adding to that, we will be obedient. Then the blood was thrown or sprinkled to the people, sealing this covenant, right? And God and his people are now bound together. And if any of this part of this covenant is broken, the reason why this is done it was, there was an implied reference. The reason why they used blood is because an animal had to be torn apart to make this sacrifice. So if we broke this covenant, then we are saying, if a covenant is made, let's say I make a covenant with one of you, and then we use the sacrifice. Back in the day, we used blood. And, you know, as a kid, I don't think they do it. I don't think kids do it now. So if you're a millennial, I don't think you would have done it or you would do it, but back in the day, um, you would, you know, kind of pierce your thumb, and it would, there would be blood, and then your friend or your brother would also pierce their thumb, and, thumb, and then you put it together, and then you would kind of be blood brothers like that. It's not, I think you get diseases. I don't, I, don't, I don't think you should do it, but there was something, even historically, all the way back, something about blood, and it was in this time, that if we break this covenant, they are saying, let us also be torn apart like this animal. We're going to keep this covenant. And if we don't, let us also be torn apart like what happened to the animal. So we are, that's how serious they took covenants. And this is why they showed it by example. And so once, uh, and then, you know, once this covenant is established, Something extraordinary happens. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and all the elders go up and they see God. That's amazing. God doesn't strike them dead, it says, as they feared might happen. 
But the Bible says that they beheld God and they ate and drank. Tim Chester in his commentary would write that this is salvation, to eat in the presence of God. This is what we are looking forward to. You know, I woke up this morning with an old, old song in my head. Um, I think it's by Don Moan. It's about, I just want to be where you are, dwelling daily in your presence, you know, feasting at your table, sitting at your feet. And this is what salvation is, and this is what we are showing us. So salvation isn't just about achieving some ultimate supreme status. Salvation is feasting with the ultimate supreme being. Salvation is fellowship with God. And why is this significant? Because once we were enemies of God, but through the sprinkling of blood that is truer than Abel's, a sacrifice that was absolutely pure and holy in Jesus, we don't just dine with them once. This doesn't happen again, mind you, because they break this covenant. They break it time and time. They break it immediately after, as we'll see. We don't just dine with them once, but through this perfect sacrifice, through the new covenant a blood that was shed through Jesus Christ, we get to dine with him for all eternity. And this is what we do in communion. We look back to what Christ did for us while looking forward to where we will be seated forever. And see, we don't just stand in the distance that we saw here in the past five chapters. We don't stand distant to God because he's foreign to us. The promise is that we'll sit next to him because now through the new covenant, he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. We know this to be true and we have confidence in him because he is the one that said, he is the one that said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And this is now what we hold on to and look forward to. Do you want to know what church is? Do you want to know how to do church? Church is ultimately about his people coming together, holding on to the promises that God has given us, believing that Jesus Christ died for our sins, and through him we have now an entranceway to go to the foot of the mountain where God is and dine with him. And this covenant is kept by not our own strength or our own accord, by our own good deeds, but it was done by Jesus Christ. And because Jesus Christ did it for us, we can go and there's no more fear. We can go and we, can't, we won't be like, oh my goodness, because right after I go back, I know that I'm going to do something bad. But we can trust in Jesus, saying, Jesus, you are the one that saved me, and I need to continue to trust that you will continue to save me. This is where we have a difference of what happens of a Christian believer or someone else who tries to do it their own way, achieve the supreme, ultimate status by their own good works. You will fail. You will, and we can, we can call it Christian too, but it's not Christian if you think you're a Christian because you've been going to church for a long time, you go to Sunday services, you pray, you sing songs, that makes you a Christian, that is false. False. And if no one ever told you this, I'm sorry. But someone should have told you the truth. 
The truth is that if you want to be a Christian, you trust in the blood of Christ that is truer than Abel's. You trust in the sacrifice that is purer than any other sacrifice, a holiness that this world could have never attained or achieved before. And we trust in him. And in our trust in him, he's the one that brings us to him. You see, every step of the way our church is moving, and every step of the way we're seeing God is proving faithful. God is the one that's faithful to his people. God is the one that is faithful to his church. We've done some mistakes. We've made a lot of mistakes. I'm not perfect. I've made mistakes too. But in our trust in him, we see God is continuing to change us. Our hearts are being renewed. Our hearts are being now molded and mended and made into his likeness. And we see this take place every day in our relationships with one another, in our relationships with the world. And we're seeing this as a testimony of God's goodness. I wish I could just just say every single thing that's just happened this week. But God has been so good. I want you to be a part of it. I want you to know that God is bringing and calling you to his table. And to do that, you need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not about just saying, raising your hands like, I'm going to do it and walking down the aisle and saying, I do it. It's a daily thing that we do every day. Saying, I trust in you. I'm going to walk with you. And you know what? God gives us the church to do that. God gives us the church to do that. And God gave us here this church that we could do that. And every day we're changing. You know, sometimes we can walk and it can be kind of murky. Uh, we may not be able to see clearly. And I think this is exactly what I said even three weeks ago. Three weeks ago, we didn't know we would be here last week. We just didn't know. And we do, we're not sure, but what we ought to do is continue to trust in God. And so three weeks ago, we had no idea uh, even how these chairs would have been set up. And I think the chairs are going to be moved again. We're going to try to move it up a little so people can move along in the back. I mean, we're, we're continually changing things. But three weeks ago, we had no idea. But you know what we can do? It's like Moses did, build an altar. What an altar is, you build and you remember things by looking back. What has God done? And he set up the 12 tribes of Israel. So he set up 12 pillars. He remembered all the things that God did for his people. So what we should do is we should just turn back and we see how far we've come. That's amazing. And we give glory to God because as we're following God, even though we're not sure about our next step, we continue to trust and follow God. We continue to trust and follow God. When we look back, we see God has led us such an incredible way. So we should give glory to God. We give worship to God. We'd be like, God, you are good. And I want to trust in you all my days. I can't wait. I can't wait to get to physically sit with you in heaven. But until that day, let me walk those steps. Let me trust in you. Because we can do that because of the blood that was sprinkled. The covenant now that was sprinkled isn't a Mosaic covenant. The covenant that was sprinkled, once again, let me remind you, people of God, is the blood of Christ. That's the true sacrifice that we've been given. And as we trust in him, he's the one that holds true to his covenant, renews our hearts, 
changes us and makes us more like him. We don't just stand in the distance. Distant because he's foreign to us. Now as people and children of God, he calls us into his presence. And we sit next to him. We dine with him. Because through the new covenant, we have a friend that sticks closer than a brother for eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that no matter what our future steps are, no matter what we are going through, when we place our trust in you, our footsteps are sure, and they are on solid ground, and this foundation will not be shaken by anything in this world, and the world can tremble, the world can shake, but Lord God, your kingdom is not shaken, and you draw us up into you now. I pray that in faith we will be able to do so and live so and exercise the gospel life that you call us to live. Let's take this time to pray, and as we pray, what are the areas? You need to ask the Holy Spirit to guide you here in this asking. What are these areas that I am not trusting in God with? What are these areas that when I take a step, it's about me. I need to make sure I get this Otherwise, I don't think my footsteps are secure or sure. Those are the direct steps that God is challenging you now to trust Him in. He is more sure. He is more pure. And He is more powerful. And He will lead His people. Lift up your hearts to the Lord and trust in Him. For He is good. And He loves His people. Let's pray.